Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Well, no one has been offended yet uh, by the title of this podcast, Better Than Nothing, and hopefully Darren Kopak will not either because it really highlights people who are in very interesting jobs, doing interesting things, but the uh, challenge is uh, for them to spend a half hour talking to me uh, because my comments are often better than nothing. Darren Kopik is the CEO and president of the Agricultural Retailers Association based in Washington, D.C. Darren goes back to um, FFA as a Western Regional Vice President, Oregon Wheat Growers, National Wheat Growers. And then, uh, Darren, what year did you become CEO of the Ag Retailers? Late 2009. So I'm in year 13, I think, if I do the math right. Well, that is a... A long time. Many of us never thought our organization would survive this long, but you obviously have led it well. And um, the background link we have together, and I won't dwell on it too much, is that there was a predecessor to your organization called the National Ag Chem Retailers Association. And there was another one called the National Fertilizer Solutions Association. We merged. I was the exec of one. Jim Boyo was the exec of the other. And then the ARA began and moved on ahead. And um, are you the second CEO of ARA? Uh, no, I'm the third. Uh, Paul Kinniger was the first one, and then Jack Eversbacher, and then me. Well, we are glad that you were doing the job you are. The thing I'd like to talk to you about is, from uh, the perspective of anybody in agriculture, is how competitive do we remain in the world? What are the issues that are facing those people who supply the inputs to farmers in this country? I'm talking about what we know as fertilizer chemical dealers primarily. You went to Brazil and Argentina a while back. Uh, you were a speaker at a conference. You toured some of the countryside. Give me an overview, Darren. Well, two very different countries, but really interesting to, to study. I'd been to Brazil probably five or six times because we have a, a sister organization relationship with our counterpart there. And so I've been to their meeting several times. They've been up to our meeting several times. And uh, it's, it's amazing how quickly that market is growing and changing. Uh, some of the things that we see going on in our market here in the United States are happening there, but at a much faster rate. Uh, and one example of that is you know, the biological products that you see in the marketplace now that are becoming popular. And a lot of people are looking at them and studying them. The growth rate here in the U.S. and, and the, actually the global average is somewhere around 10 percent each year. In Brazil, the rate's 28 wow. percent. So they're they're adopting technology really quickly. Um, I just in the years that I've been going to Brazil, I've seen all kinds of changes in how they do business 
and the technologies that they're using. Um, so it, it's a really rapidly changing market. What are they aiming these bio uh, products for? Uh, what type of control? So they're they're using uh, biostimulants, biofertilizers, and biopesticides, all all of the above. And, and I, Brazil's going to be, I think, really interested in in anything that they can manufacture domestically rather than import, because their transportation logistics remain a challenge to get stuff from the port up into where the crops are grown in the center west. And so if instead of importing a product into the Port of Santos down by Sao Paulo and trying to get it all the way up country on roads that are not always very good or manufacturing a biofertilizer right there in Mato Grosso, uh, that's a pretty easy decision to make if they can replace one with the other. Yeah, certainly it would be. And uh, Mato Grosso, their major growing region is... uh, is amazing to see. It's a tropical area. It never freezes there. It just gets dry for half the year, and that is their off-season, and then it uh, rains the other half of the year, and they grow their crops until they run out of moisture. Um, But they have great challenges of uh, logistics of being able to get things in and out due to lack of infrastructure. The last I knew, they didn't even have a railroad into Mato Grosso. It was all roads. Is that right? I believe that's still the case. There's been some interest and maybe even some investment by some of the international grain companies in trying to fix that. But I don't know that there's a rail that runs all the way out there to Monte Grosso yet. Now, on the other side of it, though, if you could ever get everything to the Amazon, uh, you'd be in great shape because it is a tremendous uh, highway out. But everything sets south, almost everything sets south of the Amazon, and you've got to get into some tributaries to... Uh, to flow it north, and that doesn't look like it's progressing as fast as they wanted it to. No, they, they, that remains a challenge. I, I remember the first time I went to Brazil, probably 20 years ago, uh, maybe not quite that long, but almost, the, the conclusion I walked away from after seeing Mato Grosso is, yeah, they can grow piles and tons of soybeans here, but it's more likely that they're going to export this crop as finished meat products than it is as grain because you're going to be able to even fly out some of those high value products where uh, the corn and the soybeans and the wheat in Southern Brazil, you've got to ship them like, like typical commodities. Well, the challenge they've always had is exporting cheap commodities uh, because it costs so much to get it out of the interior. Um, I was there in 83 with John Block. And when we flew into uh the area of uh, the cities in Mato Grosso, even when we flew into Brasilia, the area around it was still forest. And I'm not calling it tropical forest. They call it cerrados, which is these twisted trees. And um, and the soil was way off balance. Uh, they had to do a great deal to change it. But uh, when we flew in, there were a few patches and we went out to them, and they said, uh, you know, if we clear this, we can grow about soy 45 bushel soybeans, uh, and it's worth it to do so. And uh, the next time I flew in there was about the year 2000, and it looked like Iowa. Uh, it was amazing how much of that land they had cleared. And, of course, through the years, they continued to plant more and more soybeans, But you're right about this situation, uh, and you're the expert, not me, that they've got to haul out a high-value product. So corn is not a high-value product. They seem to be feeding a lot more of it. Soybeans is high enough value. 
cotton is a higher value, uh, citrus, other things, depending on where they're grown. And uh, they have made it work um, in spite of having a government that has been a little bit shaky in recent years, hasn't it? It's been a, a pendulum swing, not altogether dissimilar from our own situation for the past few years. But going from uh, from Dilma Rousseff to uh, Bolsonaro and now back to Lula, mm-hmm. uh, it, it gives you a whiplash uh, from a political standpoint to go from one extreme to the other. Yeah, I hate the fact that we're kind of holding up a mirror of ourselves <laughs> when we look at Brazil. Um, and I don't know what's coming next for them. Um, but if you, uh, if you could tell me, um, the sister organization you have in Brazil, does it have a level of sophistication that's impressive? It does. Uh, the organization is called Andavi, uh, and I, I can't pronounce all the words in Portuguese to tell you what, what those letters stand for, but they represent the retailers of, uh, uh what they call defensives, which we call pesticides or veterinary supplies. Uh, they don't actually represent fertilizer retailers per se, although if you go to their annual convention, uh, the fertilizer manufacturers are all there. And I think most of the, the members sell fertilizer too, uh, but it's not formally part of the association's remit. But if you compare the two of us together, uh, you know, our annual meeting draws maybe 600 people, six to 700, depending on location and year. Uh, theirs draws several thousand people, and they have a, a 25,000 square meter trade show, which is way larger than ours is. And the thing seems to be growing 10 to 20% every year. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a big, sophisticated, uh, capable organization, and, and uh, we're learning a lot from them. Does this include their area of southern Brazil that's more temperate? and smaller farms and and definitely not the same as that which is up in Mato Grosso? Yeah, they're, they're across the country. So it's everything from Mato Grosso in the west down to uh, Paraná or Rio Grande do Sul in the south where there's a lot more wheat grown, all the way up to uh, uh, Piauí and the, and the uh, states that, that border the, uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico where they grow a whole lot of melons and export, you know, like container loads of melons weekly to Europe uh, out of that part of the country. So they represent everybody. I saw in your writings uh, that you had gone on to Argentina, and everything you said about Argentina was very positive, except their government. And apparently their government is still the greatest impediment to their agriculture that they have. That's true. Um, And and one of the people that I talked to there actually was serving as my, my translator because I'm not fluent in either Spanish or Portuguese. Uh, her observation on their selection of presidential candidates is that we can, I believe she said it was uh, crazy, stupid, or incompetent. Those are our three choices. <laughs> well, their economic policies have really never made sense to me because they have such a tremendous uh, base uh, when you look at the lands that they have in Argentina, they're actually easier to cultivate, it appears, than that in Brazil. Uh, but yet they hamstring their farmers to where that they may grow the crop, but if they're going to sell it, the government gets a rake off the top before it ever goes out of the country. And it's a 30% rake. It's not an insignificant amount. 
The government also restricts their access to foreign currency reserves. And so if they need to purchase a, a fertilizer import or a pesticide product from offshore, they can't get a hold of the, the uh, currency to make that purchase. And nobody wants to hold on to anything valued in Argentine pesos because their, their uh, inflation rate is 100%. We think we had it bad when ours got to 8 or 9% last year. They're at 100 So you can almost literally see the value of the currency disappearing as you hold it in your hand. When I was there um, back in 1983 with John Block, they had an inflation rate that was doing basically the same thing. And they had two different currencies in circulation at the same time because they had recently devalued their currency 10,000 to one. (laughs) So in the old currency, it was, if I get this right, um, 1 million pesos, 100,000 pesos, and 10,000 pesos. The new currency currently existing at the same time was 100, 10, and 1, mm-hmm. which is astonishing that they could do that, but that's what they did. Yeah, and, and you look at what they've got today. The biggest bill that they have in circulation is a 1,000 peso note, but if you go to Burger King and get a, a combo meal, it costs you between three and 5,000 pesos. I mean, there's, there's, there's no bill big enough to go buy anything. It takes a whole stack of cash or a credit card uh, to make a purchase. So they're not Zimbabwe yet, but they're headed that way, huh? It's, it's crazy. And, and the people are so great and so creative and so resilient and trying to live under all of this nonsense. But it, it really makes their life hard. Well, you come back to the United States and probably glad to hear the plane touch down on American soil, even with the problems we have. What are your guys facing? Guys, uh, I love that group of people, as you probably can tell. I made lifelong friends beginning in 1988 when we formed the NARA organization and continuing to this day. All that's challenging to them in serving the farmers of this country. So uh, they're still working through some of the supply chain challenges that we experienced uh, starting out in the, in the COVID pandemic. But if I were to ask retailers today what their most common problem is, invariably, they're going to tell me it's people. They just are having a hard time filling all the roles in their organizations that they need to fill, whether that's in the warehouse or in the office or people that are going to be leading the business in the next few years. The bench just isn't very deep and the pool's pretty shallow. So uh, that's been a challenge that we're trying to figure out ways we can help them with. But, uh, you know, there's just not a whole lot of places to go to find more people. You know, we have a mutual friend and a guy by the name of John Hester. He's retired and he's in Iowa at this time. But John used to consult with people. He's an old fertilizer dealer. And he used to consult with people after he moved uh, to a bigger company about uh, employees. And he said, uh, You have to understand that these young operators you're hiring who you expect to run daylight to dark um, for the entire season are not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get those people anymore. They don't exist. And he said that was one of the hardest things for the industry to accept because the people that served in that industry, the previous generation, they believe that you had to go daylight to dark uh, every day to deliver everything to the farmer that they needed. 
And they want to do that to this day, but they can't find people that will join with them to accomplish it. That's exactly right. Uh, I looked at some, some data, I think, from CropLife magazine not too long ago, where they were talking about what areas of the business are retailers investing the most in for the future. And the category on top of that pile was automation. And I think that's going to be part of how you fill this gap is you're going to try to automate as many of these functions as you can so that the people you do have, you can cover the bases and still let them get home in time for dinner. Well, you know, John Deere and others are stepping up to that. Uh, They weren't the first to go autonomous, uh, but it appears that we'll get to the point not too far in the future. You can uh, send a spray rig out to do the entire field without an operator on it. Mm -hmm. Are you you ready for that? Well, I think we're going to have to be. Um, And whether that, that operator or whether that rig that goes out there to spray has tires or wings or propellers is another question. Because we're getting closer to that all the time, too. But, I, yeah, we're just not going to find enough people to go out there and do it the way we used to do it 20 years ago. What about drones? Uh, I've been through a lot of things with drones with people. I'm sure you've watched the development of it. Are they becoming more of an integral tool, or are they still something that people are fooling with, thinking in some ways they work and other ways they don't? No, I think that, that it's becoming a very central part of operations. You've got companies like Rentiza that have fleets out there that retailers are using. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, Wilbur Ellis made a big investment in one of the, the uh, drone companies that actually has a higher payload capacity to carry product out to the field. So I, I really think that we're going to see more and more and more of it. Uh, it leads to some interesting discussions with the, the ag aviators because nobody wants to create something that's going to make it more dangerous for pilots to be in the sky. But on the other hand, we've got to get all these acres sprayed. So uh, finding creative solutions that keeps people safe and gets the jobs done is going to be the key. Darren, you're based in Washington. I'm sure that you interface with uh, Congress and you interface with agencies uh, every day, you and your people. Um, Are you concerned about supply shutdowns by, uh, for example, the rail lines and others that can really impede the ability of the ag retailers to do their job? We're involved in a number of supply-related issues. Um, rail is one, certainly one of them. And as the uh, you know, the follow-on from East Palestine, Ohio, that rail spill that they had there, and the Ohio senators came forward with some legislation about rail safety. And uh, we provided some comments back into that process that said, you know, we certainly understand the goal and share it, but some of these things that you're recommending in this legislation are actually going to make it more expensive, more difficult, and create supply challenges um, up and down the line. So, and I think they heard what we were saying. So it, it's a it's a balance between competing goals always. But um, yeah, whether it's rail, whether it's uh, tariffs and countervailing duties on imported products that we need for farm inputs, uh, we've been active on that issue. Um, and and really anything that we can do to keep the keep the supply running. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept Hearing. Taylor, I've worn hearing aids from your company for almost 20 years with excellent results. But I have a question today. It is that medications that we take, do they sometimes contribute to hearing loss? Great question, and yes, there are. There are over 200 prescribed or over-the-counter medications that can attribute to hearing loss. 
72% of people over the age of uh, 55 take at least one drug. Two thirds of all drug reaction, adverse drug reactions occur over the age of 60. So you're talking almost three quarters of the you know, population over 55 take at least one drug or one medication. You know, we're talking simple drugs from an aspirin regimen. An aspirin regimen, and we're not talking baby aspirin, we're talking regular size aspirin. If you take an aspirin regimen um, five days a week or more, you have an increased risk of hearing loss by 26%. Some of the big ones are diuretics. So people that have uh, high blood pressure, kidney disease, like the myosin group, you know, erythromycin, vancomycin, that whole myosin group um, can attribute to hearing loss. Um, hydrocodone, oxycotton, um, Rush Limbaugh is the famous one for that because he, you know, got addicted to the oxycotton and that caused his hearing loss. Then he had to get a cochlear implant. So, you know, and, and he was very honest at, you know, toward the end about what, you know, what caused that chemotherapy drugs. So if anyone has gone through chemotherapy, chemotherapy wreaks havoc, not only on your body, but on your hearing as well. Um, you know, the little blue pill can attribute to hearing loss. So there are, you know, many different uh, you know, medications, whether they're over-the-counter prescribed, um, that can attribute to hearing loss. So the best thing to do is, is, you know, get with your doctor and the pharmacist to find out what the side effects are. If there are other medications maybe where certain, um, certain side effects are less with one versus another. And it's just having that open dialogue, you know, with your, with your providers to really understand, are there, you know, ramifications for the medications I'm taking? And sometimes, there's just, you know, there, there's no other choice but to take the medication, just understanding um, that it can attribute to hearing loss, and, and it's something you need to monitor. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing by calling 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Darren, when I was there, by the way, Darren Kopik is my guest, who is the CEO of the Ag Retailers Association based in Washington, D.C. When I was there, the EPA was the most challenging agency for us. Uh, they had more to do with the fertilizer chemical dealers than really anybody else and were willing to uh, enforce regulations. Uh, are they still your most challenging agency? So we spend most of our time with four of the federal agencies. One is DOT, one is Homeland Security, one is EPA, and one is OSHA. And uh, EPA remains a challenge. Uh, I, I really have a lot of respect for the administrator, Michael Regan. I think he's, he's level-headed and tries to approach things in a practical way. But a lot of the pressure that the uh, EPA is under in this administration and the people that are surrounding him uh, there are going to be some things that come out of that process that we will have some, some trouble dealing with. But OSHA isn't far behind. They haven't been very active right now. But it wasn't very long ago that OSHA was trying to apply a process safety management regulatory requirements on retailers, which hadn't been done in, in decades and was inappropriate. We finally ended up going to court along with TFI to get that process stopped. Uh, but I think of the of the four, the two that we probably have the biggest challenge with would be EPA and OSHA. You know, at one time, not saying it was a good idea or a bad idea, but it did have an interesting outcome. Um, we decided we would like to get some of these people who were the um, mid-level of EPA and other agencies to come out to a 
dealership and actually work for them for a couple of days. And so I found dealers who would take them, which was certainly not everybody. And uh, then I found people who would come, which surprisingly was quite an interesting group. Um, We just had to figure out a way to pay their way. But what we found was, number one, they're regulating, and they had never been to the people that they regulate. They had never seen them on their own turf. And the second was that once they got out there, they said, we had no idea how committed these people are to serving the farmer. And they came back from it quite impressed, and I think had a, a change of mind of who they were regulating. But it just kind of scares me in this country that government can be so separated from the real world and yet can have the impact it has upon them. Uh, that remains a challenge today, Ken. Uh, I was at a meeting this spring of 2022, uh, Crop Life America meeting, and was talking with Ed Messina, who is the director of EPA's Office of Pesticide Programs. And he was commenting that, you know, we've got a bunch of new people on the, on the scientific regulatory staff who have not been out in the field to see how these products are used, handled, and stored. And so I said, let me help you with that. And we organized a tour last last August. Uh, two of our members on the Eastern Shore, uh, Nutrien and Willard Agri-Service, were willing to host a delegation. And we took them out, the 34 scientists from EPA, uh, took them to these two retail sites, walked them through, let them ask questions, fed them lunch, brought them back all on a uh, one-day trip. And it was amazing the kind of interactions that we were able to have with them. Um, and... and you know, several that I talked to said, we know how important these products are. Um, so I think it was a really productive um, productive engagement. And it shows that we've, we've got a pretty strong relationship with the OPP leadership, which is really helpful. Darren, what else is going on with your organization or with the challenges or the opportunities you face right now uh, as we uh, zoom into this uh, new century? But one of the things that we spend a heck of a lot of time on is driver and truck related regulations. And so Richard on our team has been working probably for years on a uh, pilot program with DOT that would allow people who have a CDL license but are younger than 21 to drive a truck across the state line. Because right now the regulations require that you got to be 21 if you're going to operate interstate. And so, uh, he he and others were successful in getting a pilot program put together. But now that DOT is actually trying to implement the program, they've tied it to a Department of Labor OSHA program. You have to participate in both. If you're going to do one, you got to do the other, which adds no value. All it adds is cost complexity. And as a result, no surprise, nobody wants to participate in it. So you got to keep fighting battles like that to, to make the things that you try to do work. Uh, but there's there's lots of examples like that of things that we're continually working on on behalf of, of America's ag retailers. Well, I appreciate what you do, and uh, it makes a huge difference uh, to those people who are in the field just trying to do their job, that somebody's in Washington trying to, to at least uh, cut through the weeds and give them an opportunity to do so. Because I think we have a, a new generation of ag retailers who are uh, extremely um, sophisticated and capable of being able to uh, understand technology, 
bring technology to the field and deliver what the farmer really needs uh, and keep us competitive uh, with those people in South America and other places that are also growing these crops. So thank you for what you and your staff and all the ag retailers do. Ken, we're glad to do it. We enjoy it. It's a great group of people to work for. Darren Coppock, a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, Godspeed. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.